You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Cher oncle, je te demande conseil. Mon mari à présent n'est plus qu'un renégat qui a compromis l'avenir et le bonheur des siens pour de mauvaises idées progressiste, dangereuse. Pour cette raison, je crois de mon devoir de le dénoncer aux autorités, afin qu'il soit arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté au plus vite. Arrêté. Arrêté. Le voilà Rébellion militaire qu'on t'arrête, salaud. Et il savait qu'il a dénoncé. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Jess Byard. Hello. This week we're looking at Fernando Arabal's 1971 film, Viva la Muerte. The film tells the story of Fondo, a young man whose mother sold out his father to the fascists during the Spanish Civil War. This was the feature directorial debut of Arabal, who, along with Roland Topor and Alejandro Jodorowsky, began the panic movement. We'll talk a little bit more about that, as well as a lot of bit about the film, including the beginning, middle, and end. So if you don't want anything spoiled, go ahead and turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen Viva la Muerte. We will still be here. So, Heather, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? The first time I saw Viva la Muerte, is it Muerte or Muerte? I always say Muerte, but I don't know if I'm just trying to be like a fancy gringa about Muerte. this. Muerte. Muerte. <laughs> I was saying Muerte, too, but I also have no basis on that. So. <laughs> Rico Muerte. <laughs> oh, that is the is that a Rico Suave reference? <laughs> that is not a good crossover. <laughs> Ooh, that's but, a surrealist. <laughs> I first saw View Marte back in 06 or actually 07. And a friend of mine uh, at the time, who's sadly no longer with us, me and him had super bonded over Horowski. And he was the one that was like, you need to check out Fernando Arabal. And Viva la Muerte was the uh, specific title he mentioned. And sort of a kismet would happen. And I ended up getting the cult epics release of Arabal's films. And I even, I believe I even wrote about Viva Muerte way back when I was still writing for Video Watchdog years ago. You know, even though my friend had told me in great detail about it, uh, nothing can prepare you for this movie. 
I was gobsmacked. I was haunted. I've never seen something that is both so vicious and ugly, but also beautiful. It's one of those films. I I definitely don't think anybody's going to see anything like it. How about you, Jess? True to form, the first time I watched this movie was for this podcast. As a horror fan, I'm pretty hard to really get me with with any type of gore or anything like that. But uh, watching this film for this podcast, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of surrealism in general and art and, and film and, and anywhere else, pretty much. It's very topical. Uh, it, has, it has a lot of uh, threads through it that, that we can really relate to uh, certain things that are going on right now in our society and all across the world, really. But a movie that I, I kind of like in this too a little bit, just as far as kind of the shock and the kind of visceral nature and uncomfortability that you're sort of put through during this while you're tagging along with this little boy who's trying to make sense of why his mother sold his father out and maybe some Oedipal complexes. <laughs> a movie that I thought of while I was watching this was The Killing of Sheep. I don't know why. I don't know if it's necessarily, I mean, I, I guess there maybe are some some similar themes there, but it's just, it's kind of, whereas Killing of Sheep, I think, fits more into a reality than this movie obviously does, but it's hard to say why I liked it. You know, it's definitely not a movie that I would recommend to just anybody walking down the street, <laughs> uh, especially some of the gore, which that was uh, something that I wasn't, I guess, necessarily prepared for, even though I had seen that, you know, it was notorious for being shocking and, and all of that, but I just kind of said, yeah, whatever, I've watched Cannibal Holocaust and Faces of Death, it's whatever. But there's something about this specific story and the violence that's being portrayed that cuts a bit deeper than things like Faces of Death or Cannibal Holocaust that are pretty just surface-level exploitation. This movie is not an exploitation movie, in my opinion, so it hits a bit harder, I think. I had seen a lot of this film before, and it feels like I saw the whole thing, but I can't necessarily remember. So much of this film comes to me in almost like dreamlike images that it's tough for me to even remember when the first time I saw that amazing image of Fondo's father, his head uh, stuck in the desert, and his mother riding a horse running towards the head. And it's just like that poster image has been in my life for I don't know how long. And so it just feels like this movie has been part of my life for a long time. But I can't say that I'm an expert at Arabal's filmography in any sense, but I have enjoyed everything that I've seen him do. And he is that third leg of the stool that I mentioned with Topor and Hodorowski. And so I was seeing, of course, a lot of Hodorowski in this when I was watching it again, especially the sheep, you know, the, the murdered sheep that are in here. You talk about killer of sheep, but here's all these sheep that are there with all the blood. And I'm thinking of those crucified sheep that are in Holy Mountain. And I just really see the two films, this in Holy Mountain or this in El Topo, complementing one another. I mean, we've spoken about Hodorowski many times on this podcast, and we talked about Topor specifically in regard to The Tenet and Fantastic Planet. So it's nice to see he's not necessarily represented in this fully, though his drawing opens up the entire film. This very Hieronymus Bosch 
like drawing that we then return to several times throughout the uh, film, which is a very nice kind of callback. And then we have this whole idea of this um, children's song that plays. And one of the things I've noticed as I've watched more Arabal is that he likes to contrast the childlike with the horrific. You can be a child and live the horrific and manage to come through it, but there is always that level of, of horror there. And I, I mean, starting it off with this really quaint children's song as there are these images of people on spikes and crucified <laughs> and having these, like, there's that image of the, the guy who has his his feet on what looks like a bicycle pedals, but then there's a saw blade that is cutting him in half. Just wow, super striking. This movie does a really good job of kind of exploring that. But for adults, we experience the horrific and we see it day to day, and we know that horrible things are going on in the world, and we know that they're committed by people which is the most horrible thing about it is that they're just committed by regular, you know, it's just people like you and me and, you know, blood skin, all of that. But for children who live this really sheltered life, especially somebody like Fando, like what's, what is he, maybe 10, 11 or younger than that? Yeah, I think he's got to be right there. It seems like he's just on the verge of puberty because some of these fantasies are he's having are definitely sexual. Right. And so living in this, you know, living in a sheltered world, being a child, you're already sheltered. Being a child during this, this conflict, this, this war, and that's essentially being pushed through by, you know, like fascism through Catholicism, essentially. Kids don't understand. So they're, they're just making, they're filling in details on their own. And that's where we're getting all these, you know, surrealist, imagery and, and visions that Fando is having. And I think that that's more horrific than like as an adult and understanding why things are happening and understanding what's motivating being as opposed to being a child and just having to make up the gory details in your mind, which are, you know, maybe more outlandish, but during this time, maybe not. Mike, you kind of pointing out the sort of the similarity of Topar's art to Bosch. It's funny because as long as much as I've rewatched this movie over the years, I, I to me it always kind of reminded uh, me of like old German kind of woodblock art from sort of the medieval period combined with surrealism. Because some of the some of the torture doesn't seem it seems like it'd be very complicated to pull off realistically. It's very elaborate. Um, but um, one thing about Tarpor that I must point out because I'm also a huge mark for Werner Herzog is he, uh, Roland Tapur played, uh, Renfield and Herzog's Nosferatu. And I think that is, that's fantastic. And I do just offhand. I love the tenant. That's definitely one of my favorite seventies French movies for sure. But yeah, I didn't, I totally didn't realize that. That's awesome. Mentioning that that opening song, like, yeah, talk about a film just letting you know from the absolute starting gate the ride you're going to be in. Like, the, these angelic, sort of fun, jolly children in this horror show, <laughs> absolutely, of unrepentant brutality um, that the way only our species can do. Um, to quote the late, great Rucker Howard, you know, well, we're, we're a funny bunch, aren't we? One of the main things I love about this film, I always love it when filmmakers really spay, like, use the sound part. It's like, it's not just like, oh, here's some incidental music. It's like, this is another fabric. This is another layer. 
Because even once that song starts, you hear like weird, it almost sounds like buzzing insects, and that kind of comes up again. And then you'll have little bits of music. It's almost not, it almost sounds like cut ups at time, the way that audio is used. And later on, you see this bizarre scene of this old man who's Fando's grandfather having a part of the back of his head shaved, and there's like this weird bloodletting that totally looks like something out of Ken Russell's The Devils. But the music being played during that is like, it sounds like an old man singing a folk song, but he keeps coughing. It sounds like he's like, almost has the death rattle. Like, if you heard somebody coughing like that next to you, you'd be like, are you, you know, you'd probably get away from it at this point because of COVID. But you'd also be like, are you going to be okay? You know, which is a question you ask a lot with Viva the Marte. <laughs> so, you know, is Fando going to be okay? The sound design in this is really an interesting layer of like the of non-diegetic and diegetic sound because we're hearing music that's not necessarily happening within the world but then it kind of blends like you said with that old man singing and coughing a lot of the you know sort of fa- i don't know vision daydreams that fando has have people like making like sort of i don't know it's it, i guess it was kind of it was dubbed or adr or something like like the equivalent to that and the over-exaggerated kind of, like, sounds coming from the mouth. There was just... This movie is definitely covers all senses, aside from smell. But even still, that I think you can kind of fill in on your own. I was... During a scene when he was, you know, it's toward the beginning when he's reading the letters that his mother is writing basically to the church saying, I'm worried about my husband. He's got all these communist notions. As Fando reads them and is finding out that his mother's betraying his father, there are these flies that just keep landing on his face and he does not move or twitch or anything. And that just, I don't know. There's something about that that's just stuck with me. And there's a few instances later on throughout the film that, that just kind of visceral world that they're living in where everything, it just, nothing is clean or nothing is, it's just. Yeah. We definitely need to be thinking Yahweh that this film was not produced in Odorama. I love my surrealist, but yeah, there's, you know, no, there's some, <laughs> there's some experiences. We don't need all of the olfactory senses. Yeah, if you're like me and you just, you know, you entered into this as a Hordorowski fan. And of course, Arabal wrote the original play for Fando Elise, which was Hordorowski's first film. And there's very, it's kind of cool to watch because they're very similar. Obviously, you have some themes that are the same, but at the same time, you know, I think Hordorowski, even from the very beginning, was always a little more spiritual. And even though his stuff is so, can be very brutal, um, there's always love. There's always like something, Sort of sweet, I, I find, in Hororowski's film, where I think with Our Ball, it's definitely, it's a brutal planet, you know, and it's, there's a lot of films that definitely show us the evils of fascism. This is one of them. With Jodorowsky, it's, there's something a bit more fantastical about his films, and that you kind of go off into this world of kind of surreal, I guess whimsy's not quite the right word. <laughs> uh, frightening whimsy? Is that a... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that there's definitely something a bit more set in reality of fascism with Arabal's work. When I first was watching this, I was like, this looks like videotape. There were certain sections that looked like video. And then I actually found in a interview that he was saying it was video, that he was shooting a lot of these fantasy sequences on one inch video. I was wondering. 
Right. Yeah. Cause you can see the lines and I was just like, this isn't film. So, and there's one moment, especially where Fondo has blood on his hands and it changes color and circles that area. And I was just like, wow, that looks like a really early video effect and ends up that it was, but that he is using the video and the colorization to really set these fantasies apart from the rest of the film. So you can't mistake the fantasy for reality or what he is presenting as reality, which is very interesting because as we've brought up the the term surrealist several times, and you would think that maybe they would just show everything as if it were real or without this marker to say, this is his fantasy, but it, it definitely works the way that he puts this in here. And then I was also wondering if he was familiar with uh, Shuji Teriyama's films, because he does a lot of the same thing as far as using black and white and then tinting it. And the fantasy sequences so reminded me of that. And there were also parallels I saw with all of these war widows that are going through the cemetery at one point. And I was so reminded of all the uh, women dressed in black in Pastoral to Dying Country. And Teriyama was a surrealist in Japan, as opposed to these guys who are in the panic movement in Europe and in Mexico. Weirdly enough for me, like when I first saw like the video sequences, I thought of Frank Zappa's 200 Motels. Because <laughs> I love Frank Zappa, but I also love Shuji Teriyama. That's, and that's honestly a lot more apt. The thing uh, that's kind of fascinating is with the color tinting, the, the way that Arabal does it is you notice like with all the fantasy sequences, it's always really ugly colors. Like, cause there's a way you could kind of do that where you have beautiful sort of Obviously not of nature colors, but beautiful sort of like neon psychedelic type colors. And here it's just, everything's just like covered. It's like even, even the, the, you know, even the video stock is covered in mud and blood and shit and, <laughs> you know, and pain, which is wholly appropriate. I would have loved to have seen this film theatrically screened with an audience. I mean, in, in theaters in general, I mean, I know that it's not quite, you know, shot with as much majesty as like El Topo, but I would, yeah, I would absolutely have loved to see this. I mean, you, you mentioned blood and, and shit and all of that. And that that's everywhere in this movie. It's, it's very, quite literally people rolling around in blood of a freshly slit throat from a cow. And there's some of it that I had to look away. Oddly enough, the thing that bothered me the most in this was that haircut. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what it I think it was just I couldn't even tell really what they were doing. I thought at first that it was kind of a brand like they were trying to maybe brand some, you know, like a, a communist brand, but it that obviously wasn't it at the end of it. But yeah, I don't know. There was just something about that that for some reason got to me more than other things in this movie. I think that's actually for high blood pressure. I was reading a, an interview with, uh, yeah, with Arabal and he was saying, Oh yeah, this is a real thing. And when they brought out the cup and everything, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this reminds me of Chinese medicine with the cupping and all that. If I'm not mistaken, I think they like put a little, like a saint or a baby or some sort of little figure in the 
jar that they put on and i was just like okay that's interesting so it's yet a more like sacrifice kind of thing like now we're making this into a ritual and god it feels like arabelle just loves rituals there's so many things in this where it has this ritualistic notion to it especially when it comes to uh, religious rituals and we've got uh, his mother feeding him the host and he's got the crown of thorns on and she's got the knife in her mouth or we've got the aunt who is uh, praying after the grandfather dies and she insists that they have to pray now and that she has to suffer in order to uh, ensure that they won't go to hell so she's having Fando whip her with a belt and it's just like wow you know those scenes were the ones where it's just like okay yeah we are really in Catholic hell here well, especially, you know, after whipping her, she reaches up and painfully grabs him in the nads. Like, <laughs> like, well, you better have not enjoyed that at all. Smash. This film would definitely, um, is very wonderfully kind of subversive in its politics. It's, I mean, maybe subversive is not the right word because it's pretty blatant, but you could be on the side of just these horrible sort of oppressive people, whether it's the fascists or it's deep religion where, you know, you know, from what little we see of his grandfather, he seems like a nice old man. Doesn't seem like he's hurt anybody or anything wrong. But yet, you know, they're so, you know, so freaked out. Like, make sure he goes to heaven. I have to sacrifice so he goes to heaven. And it's like, he's a good man. Like, why Why would you be concerned about that? But yet there's all this murder going around and that's fine. Apparently that's not against God. Sound familiar? <laughs> I'm so glad we live in an era where, you know, governments don't uh, partner with uh, with fundamentalist religion to oppress people. Oh, Mike, I can't wait for all the uh, the internet comments. <laughs> Such an NPC. I know. <laughs> Such an SJW. The three of us are really, like, probably, like, a nightmare to any MAGA type. Oh, guaranteed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just see us on the street, and they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so we make, like, the devil horns. <laughs> but, I mean, hey, that's why I'm like, I'm, like, I'm with Fando in, in this movie, you know? I'm, yeah, smoke cigarettes in, the, in front of the nun. Yeah, he's so blatant. <laughs> it just co- comes into class late and then lights his, uh, lights up a cigarette. Come on. Right. <laughs> I know, even when he has TB, he's all lighting up his father's pipe. Oh, right. God. Which I'm yeah. like, kid, maybe you shouldn't be. <laughs> this may be not the right uh, time My life is shitty. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was shitty, and then I had to go live with my terrible aunt, who's maybe the same person, but with different hair. I did look it up, and they are two different actresses, though looking at even old pictures and current pictures of them, they look so similar to me. So I'm glad that I wasn't the only one, because when I read about him being with an aunt in an article, I was just like, I don't see that. What What is this? And then finally I started thinking, okay, well, there's a part where his mom's got short hair. And then finally today I was like, okay, yeah, these are two different women, but the aunt comes in so briefly. And it's really not really explained either. Oh, yeah. And it could have been his mother just as well. I'm watching this and she's, is she feeding him shit out of a shoe? And then there's all that spaghetti there. I couldn't tell if it was shit or if it was a potato. And you know what? I couldn't either. I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, is that? I thought it was shit. I did. Is this? I don't remember if the scene was pre or post the scene where his mother is taking a shit on top of his father's head. I think it was pre, but yeah, Arabal really likes bodily fluids and bodily functions. And Yeah, I we're just, getting into sallow territory here. Oh, yeah. And I just see, like, 
feet all the time. He's he must be a big fan of Bunuel. He's got mouths all over the place, and so things coming out of mouths. I mean, the I think Fondo spits up blood on the camera like four times. It's the same shot. All the feet in there, and then him, uh, Fondo caressing his mother's feet at one point when they're out on the beach. Yeah, you mentioned Oedipal stuff, and this movie is just rife with it, because he has basically, you know, according to Freudism, he's won the lottery because the father is dead, and he's there alone with the mother, and he gets to be the, the primary male figure to her. You love your mother, but not in that way. That's not exactly how Sigmund Freud saw it, though. He believed that boys reach a developmental stage where they lust after their mothers, see themselves as love rivals with their fathers, and want their fathers dead. They don't realize that they're doing this because it's an unconscious desire coming from the id. It gets censored by the conscious mind. The Oedipus complex is named after the character who killed his father by mistake and slept with his mother Jocasta without realizing who she was. Girls go through a similar phase when they unconsciously fall in love with their fathers and want their mothers out of the picture, sometimes called the electrocomplex. For Freud, growing to psychological maturity involved experiencing and then getting beyond the Oedipus complex. Those who got stuck in that phase manifested all kinds of problems and ended up on his couch. I mean, it just drives home more of that complicated relationship of him because he's so very, you know, devoted to his father, obviously, and he tells her that he wants to grow up and be a communist and a red and and she's like no absolutely not but yeah the the edible complex stuff i'm not i'm not sure where that fits in as far as the anti-fascist stuff or if that's more of just an arable theme i would guess it's arable especially because i mean there's a lot of biography going on in this story. I mean, this is, you know, this is basically sort of like a surrealist, surrealist kind of filter and sort of almost like a primal scream via art uh, of his childhood, which makes it even more just like harrowing when you think about it. Cause you're like, Jesus, like that's awful. Yeah. I mean, the relationship with the mother is so unhealthy. She doesn't do it any favors. There's times where she's just a little too familiar with her kid. Like it never goes full tilt into anything like, as far as, like, obvious molestation or anything like that. It's just creepy enough to where you're like, ooh, this is not right. And the fact that she's still bathing him when he's that old, it's like, listen, if your kid's old enough to say, I'm good, I can bathe myself, don't bathe them, okay? Like, you gotta cut the cord. Well, then she gets angry halfway through it, too. Like, there's there's this weird sort of she loves him so much, but also she... I guess either resents him or sees too much of his father in him. And so she has these like moments like during that, that scene where at first it's, yes, it's creepy because she's bathing him, but it, she's at least, you know, being somewhat gentle about it. And then later, at, like a couple minutes into it, she's like yanking him around and, and shoving him. It's, it's just very unsettling. <laughs> I'm wondering with the way that they shot that and, in the middle of that bath, there is one of these cutaways to a fantasy sequence. I'm wondering if he got an erection at that point, and that's why she gets so angry. That's what I thought, because there's a lot of, I mean, that, that metal thing, that the barbed wire, essentially, that they, he has to wrap around his thigh whenever he has any bad thoughts. And, yeah, given how she acts with him, and, and that we, like we said earlier, he's very much on the verge of puberty... That's where I thought that it was going to. 
And I think as the film progresses, you clearly see, like, she, like, if, if this film was made in it now, people would have terminology of, like, she's a little bit of a narcissist as a parent, because she's constantly talking about how much she's suffering. And she suffered, she has suffered her whole life for her husband, who she ratted out. And got him in prison where he undoubtedly was tortured and more than likely, you know, executed. And then, you know, getting mad at Fando for asking questions he has every right to ask because that's his father. Yeah. And she, instead, she's just the, the perpetual victim. Boy, it's, it's no wonder if like Arabal might have some other issues, <laughs> which another thing him and Hodorowski definitely had in common was explore, you know, both of them in their own ways explored, you know, having issues with women and with uh, mother figures. Yeah, and then the way that he turns that pipe of his father's into this almost fetish object of this Dr. Plum pipe. And then when the mother reveals that the pipe is broken because it uh, took a bullet when his father was killed, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. So this is, it, that's almost like a castration image to me with that broken pipe and just, you know, and then that's right before he gets himself, gets, Fondo gets cut open and we have that incredibly gory, Oh, that surgery scene. I cannot take surgery scenes. Oh, my wife watches surgery on TV all the time, and I'm just like, mm-mm, no. Whoever thought that a uh, a film related to the panic movement would have something in common with Night of the Bloody Apes? I'm not a fan of it. I can handle it. I feel like animal, like seeing animals uh, get hurt and slaughtered, especially, not, I mean, it's never been easy for me. But I feel like the older I get, the even, I just feel even more just like, I can't, like, I know when I first watched it, I've always had this thing of like, you gotta watch a film, just watch it, you know, but revisiting it, I just, I'm always like, okay, look it away. Not gonna <laughs> look at yeah. that. I do the same thing with Cannibal Holocaust. I'm like, I'm good. I don't need to see, don't need to see that turtle mutilated. I'm good. On the Blu-ray release, you can uh, choose the animal cruelty free version. I have the Great House DVD. It has that same cut. That was the cut I actually showed my husband. Because when I told him about it, he just immediately was like, yeah, I don't want to see the animal cruelty. And I'm like, I don't blame you. Honestly, it, you're not missing anything from a film if you don't see it. Yeah, and it's funny, but the Panic Movement were definitely, like, because you see, like, some footage and stills of live shows in the 60s in Paris. And, I mean, they were big on having live animals part of it. And sometimes they got sacrificed. I don't morally agree with it, but I think it's a different, obviously, different time period. And... Also, a lot of these are animals that people eat. I don't eat them, but a lot of people eat them, and I'm not judging that. But it's like, you know, to quote Alice Cooper, it's like, well, if you want to get mad at somebody who kills a lot of chickens, go find KFC Colonel. Yeah, the animal violence has always been something that has bothered me, and I agree that as I've gotten older, it's just, it's harder for me to deal with it. I don't, I don't know what specifically that is, but I think at least in this movie, the animal violence, which... I'm sure is real, <laughs> looks pretty real, it has, I guess, more of a symbolic purpose than animal violence and something like Cannibal Holocaust does. Because at Cannibal Holocaust, it was purely just, you know, kill the animals because we think that's going to shock people. In this movie, there's a very, I think this is probably the scene you're alluding to, the very gratuitous neck, you know, throat slashing of this cow that just bleeds out everywhere, and then Fando's mother is rolling around in it and covering herself in it, and then they later they castrate the cow or the the bull, and she's kind of just wandering around, almost dancing kind of with with the testicles. 
that that scene was hard. The surgery scene was pretty hard too. I was okay until they started like scraping more skin away and kind of just moving stuff around, and that's when I started to get kind of queasy. <laughs> I was just glad I didn't see somebody drop a cigarette or something in there. Like it was a junior vet, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or watching that fly get cut in half with a razor blade was tough for me. And they had their choice, though. You're right. This movie, I think, like, fourth bill was flies because they are everywhere. And even when Fondo's father is committing suicide and he's taking that razor blade across his – or blade across his uh, wrist, there are two flies that are just hanging out on the blade. What do you want from us? That would have to be intentional. I just can't imagine being a fly wrangler. And I mean, the the kid, there, there's a lot of insect imagery in this in general. I mean, there's a whole, the this, this sequence with the, the one kid making a sandwich out of bugs just on the ground. And like, he's just picking them up and filling them up in his bread and eating. And I, I guess that's more just a commentary of, of kind of the poverty that's inf- inflicted by governments, you know, like fascist governments that just don't give a shit about certain people that live in the world that they live in and especially given this time it's not like there's a convenience store around the corner you can just go and get stuff it's if somebody wants to cut off resources to you or limit resources you're pretty screwed the power of just kind of exposing the fact that entities that preach the most about morals uh are usually the most inherently and just disgustingly corrupt because they can hide behind it it's like well i'm forgiven right also, is that the, I'm trying to remember if the if the kid eating the sandwich with the insects is the same one that's in Fando's class that eats a fly because there was a kid that I eats think a he fly. Is. So he may be Renfield too, like just going back to there's roll some on. kind of vampire sub story happening around here. <laughs> yeah, the sequel to People in Werte. Hey, long live death. You know what I just remembered, Heather, is that uh, Topor drew the poster for um, Forbidden Pleasure, the story of O2 that uh, Teriyama directed. Oh, my God, that makes sense. I And that that is the film ugh, I, I love to pieces, and it's one I've always wanted to write about. I need- you did. You wrote it for me. I did. Mike, how long Quite ago was years. that, man? <laughs> I feel like I've done that. Oh, just over the years of just random things that I've either podcasted about or written about. It's like, oh, did I talk about that? Okay. (laughs) That makes me feel better. I honestly have to ask, like, my husband half the time. I'm like, did I do this a few years ago? Like, because like you do so much. I mean, do you ever do that with your with the shower mic? Because you you are so crazy prolific. There are times where I think I should talk about movies more than I've talked about, like, as a secondary feature. Like, I keep thinking, oh, maybe I should do an episode about The Shout. And I'm like, well, I know I talked about The Shout, but I talked about that in relationship to Larry Cohen's Bone. So, just that whole, like, cuckolding type of story, I was talking about those two movies. But, I mean, The Shout is so great that it deserves an episode of its own. Also, I think there's ties between... Tapor and Arabal, and then uh director that I love, Peter Fleischmann from uh, Germany, who did one of the versions of Hard to Be a God, but he's also done some non uh <laughs> that that movie's kind of like 
the most commercial of the movies that he has ever done, but he did like Dor- Dorothea's, what is it? It's R-A-C-H-E, and I can't remember what that word is uh, in English, but then also like the Hamburger Syndrome and a few other things. And I think Arabal and Fleischman were friends as well. So it's like this whole small world of all these surrealists uh, or post-surrealists uh, doing that. And I love that the panic movement broke from surrealism and i love when hodorowski talks about it because he's just like yeah breton he had made it you know just like too many rules and he didn't like science fiction and he didn't like rock and roll and so we you know we just needed to do our own thing and that's how they came up with the panic movement i'm just like yeah good for rock and roll good for science fiction that's fantastic i love it I just love the movements of film like that, where it's this, you know, set of rules that people want to follow and then then breaking out of them. And I find the fact that, do we have distinct movements of film anymore? The last one that I can think of, well, there was Mumble... The indie, like indie boom. There was Mumblecore that came out of that, and then there was the... uh, Lars von Trier, the uh, Dogma stuff. Oh, yeah. Dogma, mm-hmm. 95. And that's about it. Now I can't think of a, any sort of real clear movement of films. Right. I guess that says more about commercialism and capitalism of film. <laughs> we need to only make things that will guarantee us at least some money. And in two weeks, we're going to be talking about another group that made a break with the Surrealists, who were the Letras, who eventually were left behind for the Situationists. So it's going to be a good month if you're a fan of post-Surrealist movements. Anything where a collective takes like old, sort of old rules and just is like, okay, we're setting this shit on fire. Dismantle it entirely. (laughs) I think we're definitely overdue for that. Yeah, whether like both in, I think in all arts, we need to have like an art form that scares people again. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that in recent memory that would be. I mean, aside from like superficial scaring, as far as like video games and and stuff we're doing, you know, at the sort of height of them becoming popular and people having them, but. Yeah, nobody, there's, and I don't want to say nobody because there there are tons of indie filmmakers, there are tons of independent artists, there are tons of musicians out there doing work like this and putting it out there. It just doesn't get seen, which is unfortunate. And it's not, you know, we are having sort of, you know, as far as this quarantine stuff and everything has gone on, and we're seeing these changes in film festivals moving to online. And we're seeing these sort of curated formats like, you know, things like Shudder, where it's specifically horror movies. And it's not just, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and all the basic ones you've heard of. It's deep cuts. It's stuff that people are pulling directly from festivals. And I like that we're actually going that direction and making things more accessible but I still feel like there is a huge hole in things that are non-genre. People don't write enough manifestos these days. It feels like every one of these movements would have had their own manifesto where it's like, we are going to, you know, even when it comes to dogma, not like it or hate it, but it was just like, we are going to not do this and we're going to do this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the message gets out there and people understand it. Whereas now it's like, okay, you always have to be on the lookout for stuff as far as like, oh, well, that's kind of related to this and that's kind of related to this. But I don't see people writing their manifestos and being like, yeah, we're going to do this from now on and fuck everybody else. And this is our movement. You know, I just the mumblecore stuff came and went. And thank God for that. Uh, now it's, you know, there's 
there's still shitty movies out there, but they're not being called that anymore. Thank goodness. But yeah, I mean, now it's like a few years ago, it was like torture porn was like the thing and people had their hair on fire about that. But again, that wasn't necessarily a movement. It was just like, here's a bunch of films that all came out around the same time. And that was more of a reaction. Like that's just that was a two, you know, nine eleven happened, and then boom, we got all of those movies where it's like, oh, Americans going into foreign countries and terrible things happening to them because foreigners are evil. Thanks, Eli Roth, the patron saint of mumblecore, the Duplass brothers, right? And they're Hollywood now. Like, <laughs> you know, they've got shows on HBO, and I'm not knocking them for it. I mean, hey, mon- you want to make money doing your art? That's great. I-, I have no problems with that. I would love to make money just, you know, writing and making my own movies. But yeah, once you step up into a different level, you leave those kind of indie movements behind and those that willing to take risks on things that aren't going to be, that are only going to be for like, you know, a handful of people. Next thing you know, you're making The Rainbow Thief or Emperor of Peru. I don't count The Rainbow Thief, by the way. I actually had I had somebody chide me uh, a few years ago when I wrote about dance reality, because they were like, what about The Rainbow Thief and Tusk? And I was just like, it's not canon. So saith me, I don't count it. I'm writing this piece. <laughs> Honestly, I, I hope I don't sound like a total dolt here. I thought, when I hear Mumblecore, I always think of rap. <laughs> what, like nerdcore? <laughs> Yeah, like I didn't, I did not, I have to admit, like maybe it's because I'm, I'm always kind of spending my time kind of watching and researching older movies. I only became aware of Mumblecore when I took my independent film class in college. And my specific professor was really into the Duplass brothers and that movement. So that's what he focused on. I'm honestly not that big of a fan of it. Mumblecore is like what? It's a, all totally, almost totally improvised. You don't use, you use just your own, you know, your own apartment, your own stuff. It's very loose script. Everything else is just kind of filled in. And I don't know. We watched, what is that? The Big Puffy Chair or something like that. And one other movie by them. And I just, I don't know. It's it's just not for me. I would rather watch things like this where it's, there's all this imagery and this, you know, layers of design and, creating these worlds out of these just horrific images. I That's just more where my interests lie. If you had gone to a film festival, say in like 2005, 2006, you probably would have choked on all the mumblecore films that were there. What a weird thing to me. Like I got, cause somebody who's like studied low budget and no budget cinema and he's in, and has even participated in some back in the day. I mean, a lot of us did that, but it wasn't a movement. It's called having no money. <laughs> it's called, it's called having no money. It's an unjust improvised script. Cause you know, your, your, some of your actors aren't really actors. They're, they're only people you could get to show up. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like mumblecore. Just they slapped a name on it to be like, well, you can't say that we made bad. You can't blame us for our cheap looking movies. It's a, st- it's a movement. <laughs> it's on oh, purpose. God. Naturalistic acting. (laughs) I'm going to make a judgment uh, call. Are some of the, uh, is a lot of the directors in the genre like white guys with artisanal beard oil? 100%. Just, I don't know why. I could be completely wrong, obviously. I'm just now learning about this, but it just seems like a very, like, sounds very hipstery. Like, oh no, it's just own it, babies. Ain't nothing wrong with having no budget. Just own it. Just say, I hate, I still made something with no fucking money. You're welcome. Yeah, that's how I feel. Like, I just do it. You did it. Cool. 
It says mumblecore is a subgenre of independent film characterized by naturalistic acting and dialogue, low-budget film production, an emphasis on dialogue over plot, and a focus on the personal relationships of people in their 20s and 30s. So yeah, broke people making movies. <laughs> Going back to Arabal, but also kind of talking about what we we're talking about, like something that's always so exciting about like just the panic movement artist work, whether it's Topor, Devlin Hodorowski, and, and Arabal, is that even now, like these are films that are decades old now, there's a freshness to them, and there's also this feeling of... of they did create something completely new. Like the influence is there. Like, obviously they're big on surrealism and like with uh, Hordorowski and some of his stuff, you can definitely see like, you know, a love for guys like Dali and, you know, but at the same time they use this influences to completely form and mold and shape films that are sometimes kind of defy categorization. Cause you know, it's funny you guys talk about like using the word gore and you're right. Like this film is gory. It's, um, it's gory as hell. It's funny to me that that descriptor never entered my head until you said that because I guess, cause my brain, when I think gory, I think of, you know, being a monster kid and all the, you know, all the wonderful gory horror movies. I, I, I love then and I love now like Lucio Fulci's work and Argento and all that. But you're right. But, and, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, what is the definition of horror? What is the definition of art house? And I love some of my favorite movies in the world are those movies where they kind of take categories and just kind of just smear, <laughs> just take those inky lines and smear them all over the paper and, and make something uh, wholly their own. I mean, Arabal's work, I've seen his first three films and each one's very different in a lot of ways from the other, but yet they're all unmistakably his. Horror is probably the most, it's the most true to life, like, than I think other genres. And that's why it kind of pops up in movies like this so often. Cause it's, it's, you know, the, the real, especially movies that focus on real world issues and real world events, like, you know, the Spanish Civil, the Spanish American Civil War and everything else like that. And I think that, you know, life's not like a romantic comedy. Life's not like a comedy. You know, those things just don't, they don't work in the real world setting. But when you're throwing in something like where you're talking about this boy who's trying to reason and rationalize and make sense of all the crazy things that are going on around him, he's filling in these details with these horrific images because that's what he's been subjected to. And that's what, as people are, you know, as people, especially in a modern, especially in 2020, we see nothing but violence all the time. That's why our country is in the way it is right now, because of violence that we all saw that was put on a platform for everybody to see. And that's, you know, horror, I think, just transcends. And, you know, there are people who say, you know, I don't like horror, but they'll watch you know, war movies and things like that. And I'm like, you don't think that's horrific? I don't know. There's just, it, it's, it, for me, it, it, and I mean, I, I'm just such a horror person and I always have been that I, it just, it peppers every aspect of my life. And I think that it's really the only genre that I, I again, is, is true to reality as other genres. Horror gives us, as a viewer, but also gives artists a chance to to kind of more, you're completely honestly explore not only things like human fear, but also human realities of our own actions. And I always found it's funny when you, you know, you'll have certain films that are totally horrific and some, but people get real anal. And cause I, I recently was doing a lot of research on 1986, the uh, Hitcher, but there was like, I, I saw like a thing where some people were like, Oh no, no, it's a thriller. And I'm like, I can't think of anything more horrific 
that you're being like trailed. I hate that splitting of hairs between horror and thriller. It's like doesn't matter. That's always to me. That's just people who still think horror is somehow less than than everything else. So they have to put this other like thriller is the more subdued and the more you know sophisticated version of horror. It's like no, it's not. <laughs> like it's just a different type of horror. It's such a, it's very, it's kind of like a classism thing, I think, too, because it's like, you know, Silence of the Lambs came out. People are like, oh, no, it's a psychological thriller. It's not a horror. I'm like, it's about a serial killer. Yeah. Like, and they, so is Maniac. A like, you're Maniac. <laughs> <The> <laughs> yeah, cop? he's eating pink, making skin suits. Come they on. string a cop up like a fucking butter, like, geez, his guts and everything are out. Yeah, no, that's not a horror movie. No, oh, no, it's a psychological thriller. You know, it's like, oh, come on. Like, I mean... It can be all of these things, people. Calm down. <laughs> One thing we haven't talked about when it comes to Viva La Muerte is that there are some genuinely funny moments to this movie as well. Especially, you know, we you've mentioned uh, Dali and Bunuel, and there's a moment that so reminds me of Unshan Andalou in this when um, I always think of the priest being dragged across the floor when the guy's, you know, pulling on the, the thing on the wall. And, and uh, the priest in this movie just oh my god the abuse that this guy takes in fondo's fantasies are fantastic i love when fondo runs away from his grandmother who just she's picking on him in one scene and then she continues to pick on him in the next scene and she just seems to be very concerned that he wears his penis on the wrong side of his pants but anyway she is calling him a coward and he's just like oh you want to see coward and he runs away and he runs up and up and up and up and up this cliff and then all the way up until this tower i think he's on a lighthouse and then he starts peeing and he imagines that he's peeing so much that the town is basically drowning including this priest and you just see this priest there flailing around in this you know river of urine and there's another fantasy where uh these guys come and grab this priest and they cut off his balls and then stuff him in his mouth and he's just like mm, that was delicious thank you god for this wonderful meal <laughs> That's just the kind of exploring the mind of a child and reminding us that Fando is a child, you know, despite the fact that he's, you know, dealing with these very adult things and having a pretty, you know, adult way about him. He's not, you know, a child in the way that we think now, like a, a child. But he's still, but he still is. He's still an adolescent boy. And so, yeah, these fantasies that just kind of intermix the blood and violence with the juvenile, you know, humor of, of being a 10-year-old boy and imagining that you're, you know, drowning your shit, your, your horrible priest teacher in your own piss. And his grandmother is terrible. I was, that, that my only I mean, all the women in his family are terrible. Truly. She's just like, I made me feel so bad for that grandpa. Like, he's like, so he seems like, you know, honestly, he doesn't even do that much in the movie, but I guess by proxy, it's like, well, he's not beating this kid or giving him weird sexual, you know, sexual fantasies, you know, he's just like, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to have my head cut. And there's that really nice moment when Fondo is playing and he's got these makeshift dolls and he puts the father in jail and then he's got the mother and then he takes the father and he cuts off the father doll's head. And then the grandfather comes in a little bit later and he's taken this red flag to represent that uh, the father was a communist and he puts the red flag back up on the prison 
set and then puts the father's head back on. And it's just like, okay, well, that's really kind of nice. It's like he's helping out Fondo. And yeah, he never beats him. He's nice to him. He explains some things. There's that really awful moment where they see these people in a field and they're all wearing muzzles so that they can't eat the food that they're picking. And then Fondo has this fantasy of like starting this political revolution where they're protesting muzzles and i was like oh okay and just the way that the fantasies interact with the real life and that real life also interacts with the kids games you know you talked about how you know he's growing up in this world that we don't know from our world and to see how the kids react to that there's that moment where there's a kid wearing a crown and there's another kid wearing this black mask which looks exactly like the black hoods that people are wearing in some of Fondo's fantasies and they're playing this game which is very similar to games that I played as a kid where you spin this rock and it tells you how many times you're going to get your hands slapped and then the goal of it is basically to make somebody cry out for mercy because they're just wailing on people's hands after they come up with their number and I was just like yeah we used to play shit like that when I was a kid it's really kind of sick oh yeah or like Egyptian rat slap have you ever played that it's a card game probably not under that name (laughs) we used to play one that we just called mercy where you would take somebody's hands and twist them back so their wrists were yeah we used to do that and then like in the you know like like rug burns and stuff like that or just grab somebody's arm and native american rug burns yes yeah, being a child is horrible. It really is. Uh, it's just really terrible. This is a film that's really honest about that too. Like it's just it does show like this the weird thing and like the kids getting beat up by the older kids and the one kid who's really nice is this little girl with a that has a pet turkey and I unfortunately in my notes have her referred to as Turkey Girl. <laughs> but he starts slapping her like for no reason and she runs off crying and he's like, Oh, I don't want to hurt you and you realize it's like He's processing in his own kid way, like his confusion, because obviously he's pushed a lot of anger towards his mother, like the main female figure. You see, you see a lot of that in Fando Elise too, of just trying to process, like you know, having you know, having bad figures as a kid and and taking it out on your adult partner, though, because obviously they're adults in that movie, Uh, and then being like, oh god, what have you know, what have I done? And um. Like that's like a really you know it's it's ugly but it's it's reality and it's really kind of a smart smart way that he does it you know you don't think Fando's a little shit you're just like God this kid's mixed up and how could he not be I mean he at one point is you know he was the one sawing the fly in half right it could be all those kids run together yeah they do but I mean yeah there there are instances you know where he he is being violent and he's acting out in these ways that. Yeah, you just you feel bad because it's just he's just responding to what he sees and he's acting the way he sees, you know, adults act, you know, as as adults in society, there is we've moved away from the whole speaking of first peoples of the idea of, you know, raising children as a community versus, you know, just individual parents doling out their own parenting. We we've definitely gotten away from the community aspects of parenting and I think that in a, as an effect to that, we've gotten away from realizing just how much group settings and community settings do impact children who are they're absorbing everything. That's what they see, that's their world until they can grow up and maybe Hopefully, you know, maybe Fando didn't have tuberculosis. (laughs) 
maybe he would be able to grow up and see, you know, the, that, you know, some of his acting out as a child was in a direct response to the sort of violent and upsetting upbringing that he was subjected to, or he unfortunately might also continue the awful cycle, which is something that, you know, people don't like to talk about and don't like to recognize because nobody wants to talk about and feel uncomfortable when it comes to children. I mean, there's, we see it all the time of just like taught hate and taught anger and taught violence that once you get to a certain age and some people just can't get out of that. And it's unfortunate. So I want to go ahead and take us to a break. So I've been emailing back and forth with Fernando Arabal for, I guess, about eight months now, maybe nine months. And I really thought we were actually going to have an interview with Arabal for this episode. And the, the, he wrote me an, an email uh, right around Christmas time and uh, wrote in English, which is kind of unusual for him because he's usually writing in Spanish or French. And he wrote, I am most honored to draw some attention from the Notorious Projection Booth podcast. Also, I strongly believe that you will perform the best interview since it's based upon your skills. And I was super excited about that. And then he's written to me other times talking about how great his memory is and all this. I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. And then he kind of pulled the rug out from under me. And I think around April where it's just like, yeah, no, I'm just going to do a email interview. That's all. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that kind of puts me in a tough spot, but all right. And then I like begged, I pleaded, I got a translator, actually Kat Ellinger hooked me up with somebody who can translate both French and Spanish. And yeah, it's just not happening and that I've sent him questions and they have yet to be answered. So there's no interview for this episode. That said, uh, let's go ahead, take a break, play some words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back after that. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts. Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions... Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. 
It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we are back and we we're talking about Viva la Muerte. And I think both of you guys had a leg up on me because I didn't see I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse until preparing for this podcast. I think you had both seen it beforehand. And oh my God, what an amazing movie. Oh my God. Yeah, it's, oh my God. It's like Fantasmagorical. It's that good. It really is. Yeah, I saw, uh, I saw I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse when I was in high school. Um, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I was, when I was in high school, it was in high school from 2004 to 2008, 2005, 2006 was at like the height of Netflix DVDs. So I would get like six or, I would be on the, whatever the subscription was where you get like six or seven DVDs a, a month and I would just send them all in and I just went through this period of time where I was, Watching, you know, all kinds of horror movies, exploitation, foreign, you know, psychedelic, surrealist, and that was one that that popped up. Uh, and I haven't really seen it much since then. Uh, I have seen, you know, I've, I've revisited a little bit here, just like you know, on YouTube with clips and things like that. But it was always one that that really stuck with me, and I was definitely a nerd, and I never went out during high school, so all I did was watch movies like that. <laughs> It was really neat to watch that and to have just watched Viva La Muerte to hear. Usually we talk about visual motifs, but with him, he's actually got musical motifs. Heather, you brought up the idea of the soundscape. There's the moment where Marvel, the little guy that our main character meets in the desert, where he takes Marvel's gun and he starts playing it like a flute. And it's exactly the same flute noise that we've heard in Viva La Muerte. So it's just like, oh, okay. And then like there's a couple other little musical things that come up where it's right out of there. And then again, he's using like the kids songs and stuff to contrast these things. And, and then he's got this whole thing that I think comes back in, uh, what is it? Car cemetery and maybe in the Guernica tree about toenails and how Marvel has cut off his toenails. Like he cuts them off like once a year, like they're like rings on a tree and he's got this bag of like 
254 toenails or something, and he, he might have lived for 10,000 years, we don't know. It is so amazing. And again, you've got mother and son relationships. You've got uh, castration imagery. You've got tuberculosis again. So it's just, it's really great to see him working through these things in his filmography. So I'm, I don't know a whole lot about Arabal, but did he have tuberculosis? I mean, obviously he's still alive. You were talking to him. Okay. So he had tuberculosis when he was a kid. He had it when he was a kid, yeah. So, yeah, there's that was one of my questions to him was just how close he is to Fondo, how close is he to these protagonists? Because this whole idea of his mother selling out his father, that was something that was very real. So there are so many biographical details that he is using in these movies. It's, it's a little unsettling sometimes because it's very personal to see this. And, you know, it's it's great that you can – Use your personal stuff, filter it through this lens of film and, and surrealism, and then we end up with these wonderful movies. Mm-hmm. Man, one thing I, I wanted to mention earlier, uh, and this is something that's always stood out, stood out to me so much of uh, Viva la Muerte, is the, the mention of Lorca. Speaking of, of referencing real life, um, which is funny, it was just Lorca's birthday. A few a few days ago, I was like, "Oh my god, that's crazy!" We're about to talk about Viva Muerte, and you know, for me, you know, putting the animal violence aside, the two most haunting images for me for that film is Lorca, Lorca's death, and just the cruelty and the homophobia of the the you know his his murderers. But that and that image of uh, a Fando's mother with her like where she's wanking and she's got the blade in her mouth. Oh my god, that is so ghoulish looking. Oh, I don't. I'm afraid, you know, that's an image I don't want to see when I close my eyes tonight, if I because I'm not sleeping. <laughs> but, uh, but no, his his filmography, um, and I need to see, because I haven't seen all of his stuff um, either, but I, I definitely would love to see more. And the Guernica tree's kind of a different beast from the first two, but yet it's it's very um, very much our ball. And, uh, and it has that amazing looking actress um, who worked a lot with, I believe, Le- uh, was it Lena Wertmuller? Wertmüller, Marie Angela Mulatto. Sure, I'll take I it. I believe that is it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> sounded good to me. <laughs> thank, thank. <laughs> and she's, of course, she's fantastic in it. Um, yeah, Arable's just kind of like he's one of those guys where just kind of the more you you dig, the the more just interesting. Like he's never boring. Like you know, some things you know you might love some things more than others, um, but he always he's a gift giver as an artist. I would say. Of movements of film, these are the kinds that I like to watch the most because I think they're the kind that, uh, while being so surreal and and sort of out of this world, they're also the most real, you know, as opposed to things like mumblecore that that build themselves on being naturalistic and real. It, they they don't feel that way. Not some not compared to something like this when it's like real emotion and real conflict. Yeah, I I completely agree with that and. Again, and uh, I walk crazy like a horse when uh, they're driving through the city, and you've got the, he looks up and he starts seeing like gallows coming out from the light posts and stuff, and then you see I think those same gallows are in 
I think it's the Guernica tree because I I just kind of gorged on these movies. So then it's like, okay, was this in this one or is this in <laughs> was this in the car cemetery or not? And the other nice thing is that I just saw on cultepics.com that these are all still in print. So you can go out now and get all of this stuff on DVD and they're sold either individually or there are two box sets of Arabal titles. And I highly recommend those. And then the extras that are on there are fantastic. There's interviews. There's uh, a documentary about Arabal where there is interview with uh, Hodorowski and with some of the other uh, folks that worked with Arabal. It's really, really good. I have to highly recommend that. And I was very surprised because I tried to look up who some of the actors were or some of the uh, participants, I should say. And it's not listed on IMDb. It's like this mystery documentary. So, but yeah, it's uh, Arabal Panic Sinist and highly, highly recommended. Great stuff. That was my introduction to Arabal was the cult epic stuff. And they, they always do such a great job with their releases in general. And, and that's definitely no exception. Now, is Arabal, is he married or has he been married? I'm not sure if he's married or not. I just, I, I mean, I guess that's really not relevant to anything, but it's just given the themes that we've seen uh, regarding to probably the women that he, you know, had unfortunately had in his life. I just, it seems like something that maybe, you know, as far as him working through, it's something maybe that's not something that he did, but I don't know. I have no idea. I did enjoy watching the uh, interview with him where he's talking about the, uh, the Holy Trinity of, uh, surrealism, but, uh, and he's holding a chair the whole time. <laughs> that was so strange. <laughs> it's like his comfort chair. Yeah. It's like, I need this to be able to talk to you. <laughs> um, I actually, I have a question for you, Mike, because you alluded to Jess and I before we recorded that you have that, that kid's song that's at the beginning of your work, that you have that on 45? I have that as a 45. Yeah, I was such a fan of that um, image, that image of the mother on the horse and stuff, that I I ran across the song or I knew the song from the movie. So like I said, I know I've seen this. I just don't remember everything. But I was such so enthralled by that song that I ended up, uh, finding a 45 of that on eBay. I can't even remember how I managed to figure out what the song was. Cause this was kind of like early days of the internet. And now if you go out and, uh, search for the song on Amazon, you can buy, there are two different versions of it on MP3 out there. So there's like a swing version. And then the version that we know from <laughs> even where So I'm pretty sure I'm going to end this episode with the swing version. Now, is that in the soundtrack that you uh, you provided us in your plethora of reference material? You know, that's just the 45 is the two songs, one on the front, one on the back, and one is the kid song. The other one I don't recognize, but there's so many songs in Viva la Muerte that I would have thought there would have been a proper soundtrack release for it. Yeah, think that's that would be something maybe somebody, you know, uh, could jump on and it, it, at the very least give us like a Fernando Arabal soundtrack soundtrack. Or soundtrack, if you're feeling very, very French, very Euro, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> We're feeling well, the, the experimental nature of the film, I think, has influenced us. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's episode. Thank you. 
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at James Bidgood's Pink Narcissist, just in time for Pride Month. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Jess. So, Heather, what's been keeping you busy lately? Well, I've actually been up to some very exciting projects lately, but I can't mention them uh, publicly just yet. Uh, but you can read my personal tribute I wrote recently to the late and always great actor Peter Iazello Jr. over at MondoHeather.com. Just what's happening in your world? Well, uh, I'm on a couple podcasts uh, with a frequent co-host and friend of the Projection Booth podcast, Chris Stashew. Uh, I'm on his main show, The Culture Cast, which is a movie podcast. Every month a different theme. I'm on there twice a month. This month is actually... Uh, he named it after me, so it's Jess Byer June, so if you're a uh, big fan of Ken Russell movies, that's what we're doing all month. Um, and you can find us over at our other two podcasts. We co-host together the one season show where we talk about television that lasted only one season. And we have our brand new podcast that's been up for a couple months called Scary Stories We Tell, where we talk about... Pretty much anything spooky, anything true crime related. We got a lot of interviews. Uh, if you're a big Star Trek fan, we got to talk to Jonathan Frakes. If you're a big true crime fan, we got to talk to James Renner. Uh, so yeah, check us out all over there. You can find me on Twitter at writer Jess Byard and I post everything I do there. So. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.